This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Human-looking monsters. Miles Copeland Jr. Revision tips. And the Cromwellian succession. Robin is known for his stylish convention shirts. But you know who's really stylish? Who's that, Robin? Lumberjacks and bears in the Yukon. Mm, uh, so say our friends at Atlas Games in the form of their new game, Yukon Salon, a quick, humorous, and family-friendly card game that comes in a tin. Oh, yeah, that's the one where you're a stylist in the frozen north and your clients are bears and lumberjacks. Hairdo cards rotate so they're beards for the lumberjacks or hairstyles for the bears. You match each style in your repertoire to just the right client and roll to see if they like it. If you fail, you make outrageous claims to get a bonus and keep them from walking out. Bears have hair, lumberjacks have beards, and they both need your help. Yukon Salon is available now, so take your place at the frontier of style today. You can learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. Let's check out these miniatures. Let's see what we've got for our encounters. Well, this miniature, oh, that that's just a dude. How about this miniature? Oh, no, that's also just a dude. Robin, I, I think all these miniatures are just like guys. Well, walk walk closer toward them, Ken, and see if see if that remains the case. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to walk closer. Ah, no, Robin, they're fox spirits. They're shapeshifters. They're doppling gangers. Even they're all the monsters that look like dudes and then become slightly different and more dangerous dudes. Your contention: these monsters suck. Defend it, will you? Right. Well, and they certainly suck in old school D&D, which is where we first met them, because in a world of uh, rambling, picaresque adventure, it means that you, uh, here's the scene, you roll up to the old hut, there's a hermit in the hut, or you go, there's a, a babbling stream, and the GM describes a uh, willowy woman in a, in a kimono, or, uh, you know, you head along and there's a peddler trundling toward you. And uh, maybe the first time you do this, one of the players uh, falls for it and says, oh, well, I go up and talk to, ah! and then the transformation occurs. And then there's a fight scene and the players feel uh, cheated and annoyed, uh, probably because the GM has tricked them, lured them into a trap. That's part of D&D, but still, you know, the luring, it's annoying. It's not the most fun part of, of the uh, setup. And more importantly, what you then do afterwards is like so many things in old school F20, you are taught to be extremely cautious, right? You have not, you're, you know, oh, if I don't check everything out, if I don't show maximum suspicion, I'm going to get zonked again, and the GM is going to smirk at me because I'm a goof. So therefore, the next time I meet someone on the road, I'm going to keep on going. I'm going to distrust them. Or kill them <laughs> and take their pack. Well, possibly take, well, if they try to take their pack, then the doppelganger can transform and... <laughs> Yeah. And attack you so that then you, oh, I won't even trust people I want to take their packs of. Right. And Just so fireball from 100 yards out and keep walking. Right. And so the, the, the reason they're not so great in a predominantly combat oriented uh, fantasy game is that it starts with a non-combat scene, which itself is a tip off. It teaches you a distrust. And also they're sort of one trick ponies is, that, you know, once you've met a one fox spirit who's transformed Okay, well, that's that's their that's their deal. Let's move on. So, Ken, do you have a, a defense for them in this context, or the explanation that they can rock in other contexts? Well, obviously, I yield to no one in my appreciation for skinwalkers, shapeshifters, fox spirits, doppelgangers, the whole crew. The classic ghoul looks like a person except for their feet. Uh, many, many, many monsters. It turns out that if you are an old-timey monster maker-upper, the thing you worried about is being attacked on the road to your next gig of monster making up. And that was on your mind. So you came up with lots of ways you could have been attacked. 
So obviously they're robust and beautiful in other traditions, which I guess we'll get to. But within the D&D context, they primarily, unless handled carefully, have exactly the, the function that you say in that they encourage you to become a serial killer. And enough about the game encourages you to be a serial killer that why should you add more things <laughs> to it, in my opinion? So within the context of old school D&D, these things should exist in urban adventures, which, of course, is the other half of D&D besides dungeons is stuff in the town so that you're in the town. You need to do stuff with people anyway. Most of your encounters are normal, but every so often one of them is going to be a fox spirit or a doppelganger or whatever. And that's no different than, oh, you were talking to a guy who was a sneak thief and he stole your pouch, which is a standard sort of a, a hazard of urban adventures. And if the GM is on their toes, you can't just stab everyone in a city in an urban adventure or see previous serial killer discussion. So the thing that you have to do to these stories, which were born of the terror of being outside society is... Move them into society where they work in uh, old school Dungeons and Dragons. Again, you see anyone on the road in old school Dungeons and Dragons, you're setting up for an encounter of some sort, probably a combat encounter, because as you point out, that's literally the point of the game. That's the rhythm of the game. So they are definitely uh, weak and fragile as encounters in the sense that uh, narratively they're weak and fragile. They don't really contain an awful lot in the way that, you know, meeting a, a golem and his uh, wizard or a dragon or something big and fun that has lots of possibilities, or even a crowd of orcs, because crowds create tactics. Um, one fox spirit, unless they basically are like a blink fox spirit and can teleport around, there, there's no fun to it, right? You're, you, they're outnumbered five to one. Right. And once they're blink fox spirits, they're just too cool without that anyway. Why bother yeah. with the part where they momentarily fool you, right? If you just want to have and the monster attack with surprise, give the monster a really high initiative that saves right. a lot of trouble. Or have it drop out of the top of the trees. Yeah, which, which I think you would achieve with a really high initiative. Yeah, I mean, you, you could. You could have all manner of things happen. But the the notion of restoring them, even in an old school setting, I think is just as simple as having these characters, uh, these predators, which basically they are, be smart enough to know that they normally don't want to attack a crew of people walking down the street in chain mail with uh, the heads of a goblin under their arm. They're like, uh, no, we primarily prey on elderly merchants with uh, lurid imaginations. We're staying out of this. But if the characters are hired to guard a caravan or something like that, then instead of, oh, no, it's a fox spirit. You have the, the, the ranger or the gnome or whoever can say, I recognize the tufted ears on that beckoning fair maiden. I think she's a fox spirit. And then you have an option. You can either stop the fox spirit and uh, look like a hero to your caravan. You can let the fox spirit do their work because she's right now focusing on an elderly merchant who you've been trying to rob this whole trip. Or once more, it becomes a tactical situation, it becomes a choice. And the choice is driven by the fact that you, doughty adventurers, know a fox spirit when you see one. A, a doppelganger, by contrast, needs to specifically persecute a player character and should probably be tied into the ongoing bad guy. So the necromancer has heard you're coming after him. He crafts or uh, recruits a doppelganger and says, go impersonate the ranger. And then once more, you can bring the ranger's player into it and say, half the time, you're going to be a doppelganger. You don't know it, ranger, but that means you have carte blanche to annoy everyone and screw with the party because you're a doppelganger. <laughs> and you know which of your players you should pick for the doppelganger. Exactly. And then uh, not only do you have a realistically annoying doppelganger, but you also have the beautiful cathartic joy of all the players stabbing the most annoying player saying, he's the doppelganger. We have to do it. And that's great fun. And, and the doppelganger turns from, a random guy who looks like you in a room to a, a tactical option and a tactical choice. So I guess my zeroth answer to this is make the question tactical at all times, because D and D is a game basically of tactics and uh, challenges and overcoming them. Right. Right. And another thing though, that is uh, actually fun is to flip this on its head and go, what's actually fun for the players is to let them figure it out and then figure out what to do with it. So particularly, you know, someone, approaches them in the city or the ruins or, you know, someplace where it's normal to be approached by people and they mm -hmm. have an agenda and they know a little bit about the group. And, it's, and then this person might be a little too good to be true or there's some other tell. 
And then they get to feel clever for exposing the doppelganger or shapeshifter or whoever it is. And that's jolly good fun, right? Yeah, that's sort of the, the halfway point between the bad solution, which is nothing, or my the one that I suggested, which you automatically tell them that's a doppelganger, and the one where you, as the GM, can convey the tell correctly. And it can even be as simple as, she's a beautiful woman, she's approaching you with a tray of delicious sweetmeats, but her skirt is weirdly longer than the other women of the village. In fact, you can't even see her feet. And that's, you know, a classic tell for ghouls. But you can have something, you know, with, oh, that's weird. Her eyes are a, are a deep uh, indigo instead of the regular eye colors of, of most people. Maybe she's got elf blood. Who knows? And then, mm, but you have to get the players previously conditioned to pay attention to individual NPCs at the very least as rooms to puzzle out, as opposed to just uh, a button you push to get a sword or a haircut, right? Right. And then, of course, the other thing is to go beyond uh, the classic F20 format into uh, investigation and mystery, because then whether it's happening in a fantasy city or in uh, the 1930s Arkham or in the present day, you know, a killer who turns out to be a foxbeard or a doppelganger or a shapeshifter or whoever else we've been talking about can be a cool revelation because it's not about uh, you know, meet him, decide to kill him or not, but you're trying to find out who has done this terrible thing. And uh, it turns out it's, there's a series of clues and that's that that's the, they're the perfect creatures for this. And so yeah, there's, absolutely. there's tons of uh, in the yellow King and in the upcoming yellow King bestiary, there's tons of human seeming enemies who you interact with and then discover that they're monsters and then have to uh, deal with them in some way. And of course, that's the James Bond formula, right? It's always better to, to have a scene where you talk to the villain before the scene where you then wipe out the villain. Right. Yeah. Because you have to have a, a sense of, of agenda and emotional connection to make a satisfying dramatic moment, right? Because otherwise it's just, you know, oh, look, they had fewer hit points than you. That was surprising. You have to have some juice in that. And that juice comes, as you suggest, from an emotional encounter and, I would say also intellectually, as you alluded earlier, from the challenge of figuring out which of the guests at the house is the serpent man who can change his shape. Yes, that's right. And and so you can go to uh, one of two ways. You can go, you know, there's a serpent man you d- and you don't know who it is. Or there's uh, a killer on the road. His brain is squirming like a toad. But you don't know yet. The reason it's squirming like a toad is that he's a toad man, and that's how their brains squirm. And uh, once we're examining strangers' brains on the road, we know that we should probably back away, find somewhere to wash our hands, and uh, scamper through this beautiful ad into another hut. Due to vagaries, we have been uncharacteristically remiss. Uncharacteristically remiss in informing you that the Yellow King has appeared in all his pallid PDF glory in the bundle of holding. But with only a few days left until Monday, July 19th. PDFs of the Yellow King role-playing game, the epic gumshoe game of reality horror by Robin, is in the main collection. Along with music as always, James Semple's eerie Yellow King suite for a reality-shattering low price of $17.95? But wait, more emerges from Holly's Black Lake. Beat the level-up price to get... Arc Dream's Annotated Yellow King by Ken and illustrator Samuel Araya. Robin's novel, The Missing and the Lost. Absinthe and Carcosa, the stunning found art Paris source book from Dean Englehart and yours truly. And Robin's short story collection, New Tales of the Yellow Sign. You listen to the show. You already have all this. From the decadent streets of Belle Epoque, Paris to the alternate world battlegrounds of the wars. From the post-revolutionary intrigue of Aftermath to the all-too-real terrors of This Is Normal Now. But do your friends have it? They need it. Tell them to grab it at Bundle of Holdings slash presents slash Yellow King. With only a few days left until Monday, July 19th. The retinal scan that you uh, had to undergo in order to uh, get into it, and also the extensive background check where many questions were asked, and frankly, you thought some of them were out of line, tell us that we once again entered the Tradecraft Hut. And uh, Ken, we're going to tackle a topic that uh, you've wanted to uh, go at, which is uh, you'd like to do a profile on Miles Axe Copeland Jr. And once you look at the bullet points, I see why. So he was born in 1916. 
He died in 1991. His heyday uh, was the Cold War. And uh, to the sound of jazz trumpet, Ken, I think uh, this is the point where you start the story. Right. Miles Copeland, born in Alabama, did not graduate from college, which is great because it uh, suits the sort of slightly outsider, slightly insider vibe that he had his whole life. Claims to have played with the Glenn Miller Orchestra. No one has noticed any proof of that. But once again, we're setting a pattern for the rest of his life. But he was a jazz trumpeter until Pearl Harbor, when, of course, he joined the army like a patriotic American. And then, uh, again, as a uh, evidence of his future skills, rather than sort of get drafted and wander off to uh, some Pacific Island, he talks to his congressman and his congressman sets up a meeting with Bill Donovan, who is at that point recruiting for the OSS. Donovan loved Copeland, um, but instead of putting him directly into the OSS, put him into the Army's counterintelligence corps. And you may say, oh, that's a shame that Donovan thought Copeland couldn't hack it at the OSS. Well, if you look at the rest of Copeland's career, what I very much think happened is Donovan knew that the Army was resentful of his new unit and wanted to make sure he had someone on the inside who would be feeding him intel. So Copeland joins the CIC, rapidly rises in rank because wait, wait he is a minute. Fact- Are you saying that two friendly spy agencies would spy on each other? All the time, Robin. All the time. <laughs> this is precedented? <laughs> this is. It's very precedented. It's all it's so precedented it's almost standard. But anyhow, he uh he rises through the ranks because he is in fact very good at his job. He does uh join the OSS at the very tail end of the war in 45. While in uh, London, he meets a a woman named Lorraine Addy, and Lorraine Addy, it turns out, works for the SOE, the Strategic Operations Executive, and she's an agent for them. I have not found any evidence that Lorraine Addy was being parachuted into France to mess up the Nazis. I think she was probably doing logistics and planning stuff. She may have also been working, you know, counterintelligence as well, you know, ro- rolling up Nazi spies in England. But either way, they had a lot in common and uh, they got married and had a baby boy, Miles Third, who, spoiler, grows up to found IRS records and uh, be kind of a terrific guy himself. So uh, after the OSS is dissolved at the end of the war, Miles kicks around until... 1947, when the CIA is created, and he joins the CIA. So we assume that he probably worked for this uh, strategic services unit, which was the very tiny rump spy agency that we had uh, between OSS and CIA. But again, someone's lost the paperwork. So Ken, was, was it a real coup to get to work at the CIA? Oh, absolutely. There were fewer than 200 field agents at the time that he joined. So it was very much, you know, you go out there with an American passport and a brush cut, and you start overthrowing places. And uh, certainly... Miles Copeland did his part. He'd mounted a coup in Syria in 1949. He helped bring Nasser in, in Egypt in 1952, replacing King Fahd, who was uh, kind of a jerk and probably deserved to be replaced. But Nasser is, I, I think you'd probably judge that as a, you know, type result. And then, of course, famously uh, assisted in the planning and execution of the coup against Mossadegh in Iran, Operation Ajax in 1953. Uh, that was mostly a British idea, but without American help, it couldn't have been done. And that, I think we can all agree, was pretty much an own goal, even if in the short run, it created a, uh, a devoutly pro-American client state. Although so certainly- what is, it, what is entailed as a CIA officer, uh, what exactly is he doing to uh, foment these coups? Basically, what he's doing is he's making connections with guys who might want to take over the government. And he then would vet them for, do we want this guy to take over the government? And at some point, he becomes the channel between, you know, the CIA and the new candidate dictator or new whatever he was. He's um, usually a dictator. Usually a dictator. Yeah. In those three cases, absolutely a dictator. But he becomes the, the channel that provides funding and weapons if necessary and whatever other support America decides to provide the guy. And then also generally runs the logistics of it. So it's like, well, if you do your coup at midnight, then that'll be good because we can do this or that. And so it's it's sort of like you bring in an outside life coach slash consultant is how it works. If you're a ambitious Syrian general, or as it turns out, Gamal Abdel Nasser. <laughs> After having put Nasser in, he was then sent to Egypt 
to determine whether or not Nasser could be assassinated uh, because they were worried the British would. And uh, so the first thing he does is he goes up to Nasser and he says, hey, remember me? I put you in power. Nasser's like, oh, my good friend, Miles Copeland, come have a chat. And he says, so I'm here to find out how to assassinate you. How would you do it? And Nasser says, well, I don't know. I guess you could suborn my guards, but no, you can't because uh, they're all recruited from my home village. And it's like, oh, well, that's checked off. How about if we poisoned you, Nasser? Says, well, you'd get my taster. That would be annoying, but it wouldn't get me. Oh, well, that's checked off. So that was basically his his way of uh, putting a spike in the British plan to assassinate Nasser was to go and, you know, workshop a bunch of ways to assassinate Nasser with Nasser. I'm sure he found that whole process enjoyable. Kind of a fun guy uh, yeah. in that way. So uh, in 1957, he retires and I hope everyone can hear the air quotes around that, from the CIA, and uh, lives in Beirut until 1968. Well, there'd be nothing CIA-like to do in Beirut in the nothing. 50s and 60s. No, never is. except, you know, his, 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 his neighbor and friend, Kim Philby, uh, who's just right there in the next building over, and uh, who Angleton has said, hey, retired Miles Copeland, why don't you keep an eye on Philby? I think he's a bad egg. And uh, sure enough, Angleton was right. Philby was a bad egg. Angleton thought everybody was bad eggs, and this time he was right. <laughs> this time, it turns out he was right. Well, in fairness, he was surrounded by a lot of bad eggs. Um, you can you can understand his his error. By this time, Lorraine Addy has become an archaeologist. She's uh, digging around in the Near East. She starts that while they're in Syria and becomes ever more fascinated with the Paleolithic Near East. So before it's even villages, she's digging up cavemans in Israel and other places like that. And also, obviously, Syria and Lebanon and wherever else. And she becomes quite a successful archaeologist, if you're interested. Uh, another successful thing that Lorraine and Miles do is have another son, Stuart Copeland, uh, in 1952. This is while he's in Egypt. And um, Stuart Copeland grows up in Lebanon listening to great Malawil music and his dad's jazz records and decides, I'm not going to be a spy. I'm going to be a musician, just like my dad used to be. And he co-founds the police, of right. course. I would like more conflict in my life. I'm going to co-found the police. <laughs> right. This CIA is boring. I think I'll go work with Sting. And uh, Sting, it turns out, was no Nasser. So uh, that was a, a another beautiful chapter in the, in the Copeland saga. By 1968, he's left Beirut, goes briefly back to America, and then moves to London in 1970. Uh, he's a lifelong Anglophile. He was obviously stationed there during the war. He loves London. But there is a suspicion that he is there to put the shiv in to uh, the labor movement and the anti-nuclear movement in England. And again, sort of keep his hand in CIA-wise. In 1976, he creates a giant stir by telling Arthur Scargill, the head of the labor miners union, that he's worried, he says to Scargill, he's worried that the CIA will be coming after you and is already coming after you because of all the communist subversion in your union. And Scargill, of course, is, does the exactly predictable thing and says, the CIA is coming after me. I'm going to the papers with it. And he rushes to the papers, does a big screaming deal. The CIA wants Arthur Scargill down. And then they would say, why? He says, oh, because of all the communists in the union. And then, oh, look at that. Copeland has got that story out without any fingerprints on Copeland. Uh, so my suspicion is that uh, even while he's in London, he's keeping his hand in. The other thing that he's doing, obviously, is board game design, because that's the... Right. Natural. Yes, he, he stops being a spy and goes into a disreputable trade. <laughs> yes, a, a low and hideous trade full of traitors. Yeah, he has written a book in 1969 about power politics called The Game of Nations. And in 1973, a game company named Waddington's, and uh, no doubt our British audiences are saying, oh, Waddington's, goodness me, I haven't thought of them in forever. They bought the rights and had him design a game called The Game of Nations. And in that, uh, it's a strategic abstract board game. So there's a sort of a fictional Middle East called Kark, Egypt. Uh, the United Arab Republic is the UOR instead of the UAR. Saudi Arabia is Abu Akar, etc. And the goal is uh, you're not playing any of those countries. Oh, goodness, no. Uh, you're playing a <laughs> superpower who wants to take the oil out of those countries and doesn't care how you do it. And so your goal is just to maximize oil coming out of that uh, that spot, which happens to be geopolitically similar to how the Middle East works. And right. so and, and it is based on a book whose subtitle is The Amorality of Power Politics. So yeah. you, you know you're not playing bunnies. Yeah. At no time is uh, Miles Copeland ever 
uh, being disingenuous, I guess I would say. He's probably lying, but he's certainly not lying about the fact that he's lying. Yes. At one point in, in the, I think, the mid-70s, he's interviewed and he says, well, my objection is we're not overthrowing enough governments. Yeah, he was uh, he was quite the character. Delightful human being. I have not read The Game of Nations. I've read bits of it. I read all of his 1974 book, Without Cloak or Dagger, The Truth About the New Espionage. Uh, which was also published as The Real Spy World. And that was his memoir of, of, or his not so much memoir, his recounting of spycraft in response to Marchetti and Agee's revelations about the CIA's bad activities. And Copeland was like, well, they may be bad, but, you know, these guys are being hysterical. And I, I'm just going to explain what they are in sort of a a detached, ironic tone. And it's a lovely read. It's good fun. His auctorial voice is great fun. I remember reading him in National Review when he was uh, writing the occasional column for it. And I always liked those columns. In 1989, he does write a memoir called The Game Player, which is amazingly out of print, very hard to find. Have not found it yet, but I'm looking forward to reading it when I do. And then uh, dies in 1991 just after the Cold War is over. So he gets to go out on a win, which is really all any of us want, I think, right? Exactly so. So to fit him into, uh, I guess he's probably, of the games that we talk about in the show, most likely going to show up in uh, Fall of Delta Green. Mm -hmm. And so that's mostly in Beirut until 1968, uh, with a little bit of London, Mm -hmm. uh, a little bit of swing in London at the end. So uh, what does a uh, group of Fall of Delta Green uh, characters do when they meet Miles Axe Copeland Jr. in Beirut? Well, I've, I've written him into Fall of Delta Green twice because he is so much fun. He's presented as a possible member of the Delta Green Executive Committee in a list of real spies that you could put onto XCOM if you wanted to. And then also, I believe he has a brief cameo in one of the adventures in the Borellis Connection, Operation Second Look, and he's sort of the genial, oh, I'm not CIA anymore, boys, presence. And I think that's the way you play him, is he's there, you are pursuing something awful in Beirut in, you know, the 60s, possibly Kim Philby, uh, because obviously Kim Philby is up to his armpits in mystical weirdness, if you believe Tim Powers, and why shouldn't you? So maybe Philby has uh, set something in motion that you have to go clean up, or maybe your game is taking place early enough that you can get to Philby before he defects in 61 and find out what he's up to. Copeland becomes sort of not quite the old man in the hat who gives you the scroll, but he's sort of the, the, the guy who's keeping an eye on things, can help you out surprisingly in a way that you hadn't thought he could, and then wants no part of fighting monsters because that is your job. I, I feel like that is sort of your your Miles Copeland is that he's he, he's sort of a, a distant help in that way. You don't want to Elminster it. You don't want him to show up and solve the problem for you. But if your players have been good and respectful to the nice retired spy, then they can get a surprising uh, introduction to someone that they need, or they can get a surprising degree of help from the American embassy in some way. Well, now that we've made him a character in somebody's upcoming game, I think it's time for us to uh, get out of Beirut before something bad happens there and head to the next segment. The Best of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sage 
Rush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive-thru. Protect this podcast from Fox Spirit Trickery by joining such perceptive Patreon backers as... Todd W. Olson. Bill Durfee. Diane Donaldson. Ethan Mr. E. Schoonover. And Ian Nystrom. The clatter of IBM Selectric keys and the glug of mid-priced bourbon into a jelly jar welcome us once more to that most ungrammatical of huts where we oddly learn how to write good. And today, Robin, writing good is also rewriting good. So let's talk about revisions and not necessarily revisions of style. Theoretically, you know your style, but more the how do you physically go about revising when you hate the manuscript so much you never want to see it again already? Right. And you lead off with an interesting point because a lot of this is about tricking your brain into wanting to do this. How do you uh, want to uh, revise? And so I guess also it depends on how much you work and rework your first draft before you consider yourself in the revision process. So some writers go very exactingly through the text and fight each particular sentence to the grim death. I've been in that headspace sometimes, but I've uh, put that uh, behind me. Uh, whereas on the other extreme, uh, some people like the Simpsons writer John Schwartzwelder says, just write a bunch of garbage the first time. So all the first go through, all you're trying to do is have written something that has a shape, and then you go in with the scalpel. So the first tip we have, I guess, is is know thyself, writer, and know yeah. how much work you're expecting to do. So for uh, if you're using the Schwartzwelder method, you're really starting your true writing process now, and it's really your third draft or later that is actually the sort of fine-tuning that I think we're going to talk about here. But the, the number one thing, whatever your style is, is about staying mentally sharp, because the, the issue with uh, revision is it's purely a critical mind activity. And so you never get into that flow state when mm -hmm. you are sort of purely creating things and you feel a sense of uh, euphoria. This may be unfamiliar to other writers. I don't know. <laughs> I sometimes get there. And then sometimes there are days that it's dragging a, a rock up a hill. And, and and later, I can never tell the passage that was it felt like a good day and the one that felt like a hard day. There's no correlation between flow and quality because you could argue it either way, right? You could argue right, that yeah. uh, a struggle will be visible on the page or that a flow state will be full of nonsense and, and uh, garbage that you just were happy to, to it needs, needs to have been cut in the first place. Right. Yeah. I guess it's, you know, how much uh, Calvinism you put into your own writing <laughs> on the belief that anything that's good is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess that's the first tip is remember to cut things that revision is not just about turning uh, what you've written into a better version of it, but looking at things and see if they're needed. And, uh, the number one thing you can probably almost do is cut introductions and the beginnings of, of your wending your way into a topic. You can either cut these way down or actually just highlight the whole paragraph and, and ditch it. That's the, if there's any passage in my work that I'm most likely to just highlight and hit the delete button, it's the intro where I was warming myself up and heading on in. So Ken, how do you, uh, let's say you've declared your work written. You've mm -hmm. formally entered the revision process. What are your first steps? I mean, the first step is probably to sort of go through it with the eye towards, you know, just the very basics of cleanup. Like, is there a dangling sentence that didn't have a, you know, point in the end of it or, or a verb? Is there, you know, a, a piece of a thing that you thought was a good idea and then you never finished? And so you're, you're sort of like you, if you get a piece of salmon and you go through it looking for pin bones, that's what you're doing with the manuscript. Your manuscript ideally is a glossy piece of salmon, but you don't want a little pin bone to stick out there and choke the reader to death. You want to take those out. And those may be legitimately ungrammatical fragments, which ideally are not there. Or they may just be, this seemed like a good idea at the time, but it is not supported and doesn't go anywhere. And, and for me, that isn't often the introduction, I think, because I've inter internalized your notion of always go back and tear out the intro while you're writing, or rather pull apart anything that's good and salt it into the body of the text. But uh, it's a matter of a thing that, you know, you may have had a really great idea and 
that was all the idea you had. You wrote it and you either mentally said, I'll come back to it. Or in the flow, you thought, well, that's done. I've given them a beautiful sense. That's my job. So it's, it's really about reading for continuity in the sense of, is this discontinuous? Does this fit with the rest of the text? And if it does not, should it just be deleted or should there be another two or three lines written around it so it doesn't stick out so much and flow it back into the body of the, of the, of the work? And then that sort of decision of, are we writing more or are we writing less? Ideally, will be governed by, you know, your word count at the time, but sometimes it's driven by the internal logic of the piece. And it's a question of, you know, well, this is a great point. Do we have room for this great point? And the answer may be, I would have to write another page and we we don't have room for that. Now, uh, writing professionally or writing to a deadline means that you cannot continue infinitely revising. If in any other context you wish to infinitely revise, I suggest you also don't do that. That's so <laughs> a punishment. But you may be tempted to set a quota for yourself of this is how much editing I need to get done today. And it is good to have that as an overall goal. Uh, and you know your comfort level with the number of words that you can go through. But some days are going to be slower than others because you're going to uh, hit sections that are gnarly and need a lot of work. And then you're going to maybe go for a while. And then the next day, it's all stuff that is just, you know, basically, oh, this is the content is good. Now I'm just looking for typos and uh, and errors and stuff. But however many words you're writing, don't write past your power of concentration and extend your powers of concentration by taking more breaks than you might ordinarily take uh, during a writing day. Yeah, the um, the Pomodoro method, uh, which is, you know, depends on which thing you have, but it's like. 20 minutes of writing and then a five minute break and then 20 minutes of writing and then a five minute break and then 45 minutes of writing and then a 15 minute break. That sort of rhythm seems to match. And then you can, you can set these rhythms. There's programs you can get that do it on your computer and can set it to what you feel like your internal circadian is. But yeah, you do need something that tells you, you have permission to look at Twitter or you have permission to do whatever instead of, fight with this stupid manuscript that you hate. And then, you know, that permission then means that you are also basically your own boss saying, okay, back at it. But at least we've, we've had good fun for a little bit and you're, you know, you've, you've shaken some of the, the cruft off. And then you also have the advantage of going back to the manuscript with fresh eyes more often. You have more first looks at the manuscript if you're stopping throughout. And it's those fresh eyes that like I need to tell you, Robin, are the ne plus ultra of editing that you, you never see more things wrong with your manuscript than if you haven't looked at it in a while. Right. Because, and eventually you're going to go text blind. You're mm. going to be unable to see, uh, particularly now moving into more uh, proofing style revision where you're spotting errors and uh, removing them because, you know, it, even the most skilled writer is going to uh, leave little wordlets here and there that uh, don't need to be there or uh, literal typos occasionally. Or discover that they've used the word virtual three times in two paragraphs. That's like that. another big thing <laughs> is, is uh, word clusters. And so mm -hmm. I used to be way more vigilant about word clusters. And then I relaxed a little bit when I started looking at other ones. Oh, well, there's, there's tools that you can use to uh, actually graph out, to create a word cloud of your most used uh, words. And, uh, you know, if something weird shows up on that a whole bunch of times, uh, whether it's clustered in a paragraph or even throughout the whole manuscript, because, you know, some words, you get them once a novel. Other words are just ordinary descriptive nouns, and it's stupid to try and uh, alternate them. So it's and, and, and you may think, well, of course I'm using the word vampire a million times. It's a book about vampires. Well, it's still boring. <laughs> so use bloodsucker or leech or lick or some other term as often as you can and as often as you can make it feel natural. And then the exercise of making that feel natural will improve the book around it because you're like, well, now that I've changed this dumb word, I recognize that the whole sentence is dumb or is uh, discordant more often than dumb in my writing anyway. And so I need to twist it and point it toward either the point I'm making or at the very least toward the next sentence, right? right. So that it flows. And, and when you spot a word cluster, often you will try to change the second instance of the word, but it's often best to change the first instance of the word to create that variety. And mm -hmm. I'm not even sure why that is, but it seems to be uh, true as a surprising percentage of the time. And like, like all these things don't use this as a rule, but weirdly, 
that is something that uh, seems to uh, work a lot. So, Ken, do you, uh, when you're in sort of the final cleanup phase and you're desperately hoping to find the errors that, uh, if left untended, will surely show up in print, despite all of the later proofreading and development work, what do you do? How do you look for those last sort of niggly uh, things that are uh, going to cause you infinite pain when you first open the book at a uh, booth at a convention? I mean, if I can, if I've left myself time, which in fairness, I have not always, I do try to do something else in between for a day and then come back and give it what I like to call my congratulatory self-read. I no longer hate the manuscript because it is done in my heart. And now it is my beautiful baby sent out on the world on a raft. And I look at it and I'm so proud of it. And look how it gurgles and coos. Look how great that baby is. Oh, no, that baby's only got nine toes. I'd better add a tenth toe real fast. And if you can go away from it and look on it with pride, then for me anyway, the emotion of seeing a typo or an error shows up clearer against the pride emotion than it does against the I'm sick of this stupid book emotion, because obviously you're sick of the book. It's full of errors. But if you think the book is a beautiful, perfect baby, then you look at it and you're, oh, well, I can fix that. It's a tiny blemish. We'll just wipe his little face off. Now he's the cutest baby manuscript again. And uh, it's that mental approach to removing a blemish as opposed to fixing a wound that I think is uh, key for especially that final pass where you're really hopefully just fixing the fact that, you know, you spelled, um, you know, civitas wrong or something. So when I start the revision process, I save a version of the uh, of the file and then I begin to edit in a different version of that file. And at the end, I use change rat tracking to look for the errors in the stuff that I introduced while revising. Because first of all, you, you may have looked at the other bits of writing three or four times before finally deciding to leave it in as is. Mm -hmm. But the last bunch of changes, those are new. You need to look at them and you may find content reasons to change them, as I very often do. And even more so, you're more likely to find uh, mistakes that you've introduced while editing. Because once you start moving words around in a word processor and reshaping a sentence, it's very, very common mistake to leave in some of the vestigial words that should have been cut out. So you'll often find garble there. Mm -hmm. And also at this point on a final pass, if you know you have any particular uh, issues, like a particular grammatical problem or word you always misspell, uh, you know, A, train yourself out of that. <laughs> Save yourself <laughs> yeah. some time. But B, this Stop is doing that. You, you know, yes. a last search for... Uh, you know, your bugaboo phrases and, uh, and words. Yeah. Um, change tracking is like flossing. It's one of those things I should do a lot more probably that we should all do a lot more. I, I never find it a comfortable, good period. Change tracking is literally a chore. It's like, you know, taking out the trash or doing the laundry. It, it's, it's like that. I, I don't enjoy it. So my tip for change tracking it that I found it much more useful. If you leave in all of the things that you've deleted, the material is unreadable. It's garble. So mm -hmm. the first thing I do is highlight all the deletions and accept them all. Mm -hmm. And that leaves only highlighted the additions. And that's how you spot the errors. Ah, that's a good life hack, everybody. It makes a zillion percent difference. Uh, otherwise, mm -hmm. yeah, change tracking is uh, is more enemy than friend until you take that essential uh, last step. Just b believe in your desire to cut, I guess. Right. Speaking of cutting things, I think it's time for us to... Uh, cut this podcast exactly where it is and resume on the other side of this beautiful hand-tooled commercial message. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. 
a king waits for us. And impossible landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by impossible landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes in entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing The whirring of time gears and the clack of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, beloved Patreon backer Steve Dempsey asks, What more terrible things happened as a result of Cromwell choosing as successor his much more capable son Henry over his oldest son Richard? And how did Ken resolve this, given the Puritans' dislike of alcohol? So uh, Steve there is laying out what happens in the change history. But for the benefit of uh, all of the listeners who didn't ask the question, uh, Ken, why don't you uh, take us back to the handoff from Oliver Cromwell uh, to his successor and how that acquired the shape of a pear? All right. Oliver Cromwell, not to put too fine a point on it, makes himself military dictator of England. After the English Civil War is over, the parliamentarian faction And, and for, for the kids today, give us an even more 101 on, on Cromwell and why he was briefly ruler. England is an island, uh, or is, <laughs> is, is part of an island. Um, now, the exactions and tyrannies of Charles I, who had been influenced by his Frenchified Stuart family, caused the good people of England to get both angry at Charles and suspicious that he was going to foist Catholicism on them. And uh, Charles I may have thought, uh, to the extent he ever thought, he was one of the more wooden-headed people ever to be king of anything. But to the extent he thought, he may have thought, I'm just exercising religious toleration. I'm being a good king to all. But the uh, people of England, having gone through a series of civil wars and pogroms over religion, were reluctant to start that fight again. And therefore, of course, started a gigantic pogrom over religion, because that's how reluctance works. Right. And this is 17th century. Yes, yeah, 17th century. Charles uh, begins his exactions in the 1620s. Uh, by 1630, it is uh, apparent that he is going to have to go. There's been risings in Scotland already against him. And uh, sure enough, he prorogues Parliament and says, you can't meet anymore. I'm going to just govern by myself. Parliament says, that's not how England works. They stayed in power as what's called the Long Parliament, refusing to dissolve and raised their own army because it turns out they had the taxing power and the king did not. And they sent their army after the king's loyalists. There was a uh, lengthy civil war. It certainly seemed lengthy if you were fighting it uh, from 1642 to uh, 1648, basically. Um, as the parliament then discovered that the even more radical Protestants in their army were not happy with the uh, return to Anglican monarchy. And Oliver Cromwell, identifying as he does with the Puritan faction, had noted that they were the best soldiers too. So at the end of it all, he becomes military dictator on a basis of his lieutenant generals who were sent out to govern England. And he briefly tries to have a parliament, but that parliament then is too radical even for Cromwell, and he dismisses them. That's called the bare bones parliament. They're full of levelers and weirdos, and uh, they believe that one man should get one vote and all kinds of crazy things. So he bounces them back out, and he runs the country as military dictator. And since he is very, very good at militarying and pretty good at dictatoring, everyone sort of just breathes a sigh of relief. There is no particular anti-Charles action except in Scotland uh, and in Ireland, of course, sadly, because those are both countries that have more royalist sentiment in Scotland's case and are full of Catholics in Ireland's case. Okay, so fast forward now to the death of Cromwell and right. what's the situation? Well, Cromwell has tried a couple of times to summon parliaments, and each time he does, 
there is a, a problem in that the parliament says, we don't like being governed by a military dictatorship. He says, oh, I was hoping you'd come around. But he convinces enough rich people and landed people in England that England needs some kind of a constitution that they come up with the petition, which is what it's called. They, they bring him the petition to establish a, a constitution and they are going to have a house of commons and they're going to have, well, it's not a house of lords. We don't like that. The lords are all Catholics and they're, or they're all royalists. We'll call it the other house for now. We'll fix it in post. <laughs> We call it placeholder. Right, placeholder. And uh, they bring him that constitution, and he says, well, we're going to hold off on the electing parliament part, but in the constitution, Cromwell is given the authority to declare his own successor. And by now, he is getting old, he is getting tired, he has been uh, sick with the egg on and off, and uh, it, it becomes borne in upon him that he is going to have to start naming his successor sooner rather than later. And so he brings... Uh, he has two surviving sons by this time. Two of his other sons have died. Richard, who is the oldest of the r- remaining, and Henry, who is the uh, next one. And Richard is brought into sort of the councils of government. He's given responsibilities that he did not have previously. Henry is sent to handle Ireland because Henry is the competent one, and Ireland is the problem that Cromwell has been facing his whole reign. One of Henry's jobs to go to Ireland is to suss out for Oliver Cromwell, which of the generals in Ireland think maybe they could replace Oliver Cromwell. And it turns out that it is Cromwell's son-in-law, a man named Fleetwood, who is probably very interested in replacing Cromwell and has been using his position as basically Lord Lieutenant of Ireland uh, to do so. But Cromwell, because Fleetwood is otherwise a very loyal Puritan, if he has certain tendencies towards Anabaptism, and I don't need to tell you how bad that is, he is otherwise both loyal and competent. And so Cromwell can't just purge him on the grounds that he thinks he should be protector, especially since Cromwell has no other basis for his own rule. <laughs> and so yeah, he doesn't when you purge break all the rules. Yeah, he doesn't purge Fleetwood. He just leaves Henry in place but doesn't give Henry authority to replace Fleetwood. So Henry is the counterbalance for Fleetwood and two competent people. The theory is will be able to hopefully bring some peace to Ireland. Uh, Henry's approach is to go to the old Protestant ascendancy, the, the Fitzgeralds and whatnot, the Anglo Irish, as they are called, and to get them on side and uh, basically say, you can go exact anything you want from the, from the farm people, just, bring us money so we can pay for Ireland. And they agree that that's a sensible plan. So he is slowly bringing order out of chaos in Ireland. But meanwhile, Cromwell's health is getting worse and worse and worse. And in 1658, he dies. And it is at this point that uh, we come to John Thurlow, who is Cromwell's sort of side guy, factotum and spy master. And John Thurlow says, Oh, I went to look where he'd left the envelope where he'd named his successor, but it was gone. (laughs) But don't worry. He told me that it was Richard, not Fleetwood. And everyone says, I don't know about that. Right. Because presumably Thurlow thinks Richard is more tractable and can be run by Thurlow. Yes. He absolutely believes that Richard is going to be not firing Thurlow immediately and that Fleetwood is, as I've mentioned, very ambitious. And again, he's he married Cromwell's daughter, probably not a great love match, probably a political move. Not to diss Charles Fleetwood, but that's my sense. So there is a, a actual live historical controversy as to how much of the succession Thurlow just made up. I am of the opinion Thurlow made up all of it. Other people say, well, there was that time when he was on his deathbed and three lords of the chamber were there. And Thurlow said, my Lord Oliver Cromwell, didn't you tell me that it was going to be Richard that was going to be your successor? And Cromwell says, "Eh." and he said, you heard him. He said, yes. And so there are a lot of letters back and forth from ambassadors uh, to England who are obviously very concerned about who's going to be the next protector. And they're all saying, well, it looks shady, but these five lords of the court all agree that it was Richard, so I guess that's who it's going to be. So Richard gets basically put on the throne, and as a child could have uh, predicted, turns out to be terrible at his job. He tries to be nice to everyone and get everyone to like him. Uh, once more, he tries the thing where you call a parliament, and the parliament tells him to shove off, and he basically 
in a fit of pique is like, well, if you don't want me to be protector, I don't want to be protector either. And he just resigns. Right. And, and in the process, his ineffectuality is summed up by such nicknames as Queen Dick and Tumble Down Dick. Yes. Queen Dick was a jibe at his sudden taking to wearing silks and ermines and things after he was brought into the government uh, towards the tail end of Oliver's life. And as a proper Puritan, you're not supposed to be wearing silks and ermines. So they were making fun of his dress. And then Tumble Down was a general discussion of the efficiency of his reign, which was, as discussed, not. Right. So that gets us to the history part. Uh, now the counter history. How do you get Henry to become Lord Protector? And then I guess... How badly does that go that you need to go back to Richard as the least worst option? Well, the thing that happens with either with a more competent protector in charge is another civil war and a big one, right? Because you still have those factions. The parliamentary faction is unslaked. The the royalists are still in power. Scotland is rising every 20 years or every 10 years. And there's a man named General Monk who has decided that he is not going to be run by any not Oliver Cromwell and takes the most effective part of the army and marches down to London to announce he's putting Parliament in charge of picking the next king. And wouldn't it be great if it was the king they already have, you know, sitting over there in France, Charles II. And Parliament says, yeah, I think you're probably right. And they vote for Charles II, who comes over and has the restoration. Without that, you still have Monk in play. You still have Fleetwood in in play. You have basically a series of warlord states in England. So Henry, able politician, probably could have talked them down. But again, you're just kicking the can down the road on Henry. And Henry definitely has his, his options at some point are a crackdown. Uh, which Oliver Cromwell, again, left for the Scots and the Irish, but a crackdown on the English interests that opposed him. At some point, there's got to be tax money. You have to raise some cash. And his method of raising it in Ireland was, go ahead and squeeze it out of the peasants. Just give me the money. If he tries that in England, there's going to be eruption. And indeed, there would be. And if Fleetwood takes over, who is probably who Oliver would have picked because he is a competent, loyal general, Again, you have a religious rising because Fleetwood is religiously not in sync with the rest of England. And so the, the Puritan faction, they like Fleetwood, but they don't like his Anabaptism. The Anglican faction doesn't like anything about Fleetwood. And again, once more, you have a system of warlords who have to be paid somehow. And until you get a parliament to vote taxes, pay basically is grabbing everything that's uh, not nailed down. There was a, an argument that they should just dispossess all of the uh, the nobles that had fought for uh, Charles uh, the first in the Civil War, just take all their money the way that uh, Henry VIII took all the money away from the church. And that was in the cards. That was a possible goal. Uh, Richard was too weak to do it. Henry might have tried to do it, but he might have first, you know, set the country on fire. Fleetwood probably would have done it. But again, that's a works once solution, not a works forever solution. So basically you have... At best case scenario, a stable Puritan dictatorship. Worst case scenario, another 20 years of civil war in England. Neither the ideal solution to get you to Christopher Wren and Isaac Newton and all the other things that you kind of need the restoration to have happen. So this is a yet another uh, possible time suggestion that Time Incorporated eventually does not go for. But there is still the outstanding question of uh, how you did it in order to prove that it shouldn't have been done. And the answer is not get Puritans drunk. The answer is get Irish people drunk. Because the other thing that was going on in Ireland is everyone is sending letters back home about what a jerk Henry is. And that is part of the reason that Thurlow is thinking, I can't risk Henry because he's showing independence. He's showing a desire to operate on his own. I don't want that guy. And if you agree to the pious fiction that Oliver Cromwell made the decision, Oliver Cromwell is thinking Henry's a little bit of a loose cannon. Richard, at least, I can trust to do what he's told. Uh, he's a good boy. So either way, it's these reports that are coming back, many of them funneled by Fleetwood, but others of them from others of the Irish gentry that are writing back and saying Henry was a jerk. And, you know, it turns out you go, you um, uh, hang out with a couple of Irish lords have a couple of few whiskeys and you say, you know, I don't like that Henry Cromwell. And they're like, Oh, I'm telling you about Henry Cromwell. And you know, you just say, why don't you write it down? So we all remember. And then you send it off to uh, uh, John Thurlow and 
history is restored just as it should be. Well, if, if that sounds like a conclusive note, uh, if there ever was one, uh, so I think it's time to wave goodbye, uh, but we'll be back next week with more of the similar. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. To prepare for eventualities, this podcast needs both a Cavalier helmet and a Roundhead helmet. Help out with beloved Patreon backers just like Theron Bretz, Yuri Horneman, Kelly Fisher, Brian Thomas, and James Stewart. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Combine your love of cats and your love of tentacles with our latest design, Tentacle Cat. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time. And once again, we will talk about stuff.